Rusty Quill presents. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey guys, I mention at the top of the show every week that you can get all kinds of cool stuff by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash woe underscore begone. But today I wanted to show you some of the stuff that's on there. As of recording this, there are 220 posts on the Patreon, including early access episodes, instrumentals, season soundtracks, cat clips, the Diary of Eliza Schultz podcast, director's commentaries, Q&As, and more. So here are some of my favorite Patreon goodies. I'll put timestamps in the description so that you can jump around if you want to. And if you really like them, please consider supporting the show at patreon.com slash woe underscore begone. There's going to be cat clips, a lost episode, a Q&A, a commentary episode, an episode of The Diary of Eliza Schultz, and finally, a song off of the upcoming Season 3 soundtrack of Woebegone. First up is a $5 perk called Cat Clips, which is exactly what it sounds like. It is a collection of recordings of the cats in my house meowing into a microphone. I wrote a theme song for it and everything. So here's episode four of Cat Clips. Enjoy. Spark plug, can I sit in the chair with you so I can record the theme song? No cat clips. She's always meowing while I'm trying. Always meowing while I'm trying. Always meowing while I'm Well, cat, is it dinner? Would you say that it's time for dinner? Would you say it's time to eat dinner? 
Are you sure you want this? I'm having pizza. This is just like cold slop in a can. You sure you want it? Okay. Ma'am, what do you say about accusations that you're going to be the host of Wobegon Podcast going forward? Yeah. You don't think you're too tiny to do that job? No. Chunky boy. Will you yell at me for my podcast? Ma'am, you're too small. I'm calling the police. Hello, yes, I'd like to report a s the smallest cat. Uh, sir, I think she's getting tinier. Are you all alone in the world? Were you so lonely? Spark plug is at breakfast. Is it time for breakfast? Do you want breakfast? Okay, let's have breakfast. Yeah, I'm bringing you breakfast. Cat clips. So that was episode four of Cat Clips. I hope you enjoyed it. Fun fact, there are actually four cats in this house, but one of them has not yet been recorded for the show. So if you want to hear him, you'll have to become a patron. Up next is the lost episode of Wobegon, episode 30.5, The Cascade of Explanations Owed. You might remember this when I mentioned it at the beginning of episode 31. I wrote a whole episode, scrapped it, and then wrote what became episode 31. And then the scrapped episode was made available to all patrons. I wouldn't call it canon, per se, but I have referenced it in other episodes. Take a listen and see if you can figure out where. Enjoy. It's really nice to have someone to tend to your wounds. I've never had that before, outside of a hospital. Every time I've been injured as an adult, I've been on my own to deal with it. Most of the times that I've been severely injured to the point of needing to dress wounds have been associated with Wobegon. You've heard most of the pertinent parts of my medical history, allergic to dogwood trees being the only other pertinent info, which you now have. I'm sure that if a bear had attacked me when I was dating John, then he would have helped me out as best that he could. Having someone else fetch me an ice pack or bandage me up made me feel loved, in a way that words sometimes do not make me feel, even words that are spoken in earnest. You can't bandage someone up duplicitously or help clean up around the house ironically. I would know. If there were a way to do these things ironically, I would have already discovered them. I've been in a lot of fights in the past year. Fighting and getting hurt and even dying aren't things that surprise me anymore. It hasn't made me stronger, as the saying about what doesn't kill you goes. That saying isn't true, and is a total misunderstanding about how the body responds to violence inflicted upon it, but also, some of these things had killed me. Instead of making me stronger, they made me more expecting. The sting of a black eye, or the sight of my own blood, or the limitation of my body's movement in response to injury felt familiar. I no longer greet them with surprise or protest. 
I no longer touch my black eye every now and then to make sure that it's still there or pick at my scabs or stretch my back further than my body's capable of. They are landmarks on the landscape. I am glad to have someone who is willing to learn and navigate them. I'm alright, by the way. That's the thing that people who are alright commonly do. Assure everyone repeatedly that they are, in fact, alright. I was almost entirely back to my usual self before the fight. Actually, since I spend most of my days walking around for a living, I was in much better shape than I had been before I took the job. The fight with Hunter was a minor setback, at least physically. But now I owed Edgar an explanation. I had owed him an explanation for so long that it felt like each additional reason to give him an explanation was preternaturally designed to work towards an inevitable end in which I explain everything to him. I put it off by teleporting Edgar into the middle of the Pacific Ocean and back. I put it off by getting my face caved in in an attempt to teleport him a second time. For whatever reason, Hunter was gracious and both of us lived long enough after the event for Edgar to end up on my doorstep again. Hunter had to know that the result would be me giving Edgar at least some of the explanation that he was owed. My guess is that he hoped it would go better if there wasn't a corpse on the floor while it happened. What Hunter truly cared about was covering his ass, which meant covering my ass, which meant it didn't matter if Edgar was alive, so long as he was not a problem. Edgar in this scenario being the dog that I, the eight-year-old, swears that he will feed and take care of and love forever, begging the father figure, please, can we keep him? The cascade of explanations owed wasn't fate, but it was whatever it was that people see and decide to believe in something like fate. The result of so many unrelated factors pointing towards the same goal that it doesn't seem like it could be a coincidence, even though it has to be. It was more or less fate that I had to tell Edgar the truth. The only lies this time would be of omission. This is Wobegon. Edgar was overly patient with his wounded warrior boyfriend as he cared for me that evening. After he patched me up to the best of his abilities, we sat in bed and watched. Well, we watched anything except the 2020 Charlie Kaufman film, I'm Thinking of Ending Things. I don't think I will ever be able to see that movie on its own merits ever again. He could tell that I was exhausted and didn't want to talk, and extended the small pity of putting it off until the next day. He was exhausted too, having traveled all night to get back to Over. It was morning when I woke up in my cabin and he showed up at the door. By the time we both got safe and settled down, the adrenaline had worn off. There was no more energy for asking questions. We fell asleep with the TV on. The entirety of season two of I Think You Should Leave played while we slept, so I still haven't seen it and I still don't have an opinion on it if that is something that you were clamoring for, but it's probably good. I awoke later than usual the next morning, still paying off a sleep debt, to the smell of coffee and breakfast. Edgar had gotten me biscuits and gravy from the diner and brought it home. Ah, what kind of podcast is this becoming? One that's a little too schmaltzy? I almost gagged bringing it home, he said. I can smell the gluten coming off of it. Well, I don't think that's a thing, but thank you, I said. 
Okay, well, now I'm officially plying you with your favorite breakfast food, so you have to talk, Edgar said. It sounded like a tease, but his expression gave me the impression that this was one last attempt to do things politely. Mm, I said, but my mouth is full. I did not imitate myself speaking with a mouthful of food just now. The idea of having to hear that over and over again in the edit fills me with dread, so I'm sparing you. Hey guys, this is Mike Walters punching in from the edit. You heard that lip smack just now? Now imagine if that was like 50 times worse. That's what talking with your mouth full on a podcast sounds like to me. Edgar did not respond to this joke. You know that something's up in there, I added. I mean, you work at the border between the two tiers. You know that there's something powerful inside of there. Well, yeah, he said. But I don't know what it is or what you're doing in there. I don't go around asking questions at work. It saves me a large amount of hassle to not know what's going on. Well... The thing in there is how you ended up in Arizona. It's how you ended up in... Arizona. Smooth, Mike. I almost admitted to setting him down in the middle of the ocean. And how do you know that? How do you know what's inside the area that you don't have access to? He asked. It seemed to me that he already knew the answer. Because I've been... Sneaking in? I said, sheepishly. Sheep wish that they could behave as sheepishly as me. Is you sneaking in how I ended up in Arizona? He asked. Not on purpose, I said. I didn't do it. It was the result of something going wrong. Are you a foreign spy? Is that why you keep speaking German to me or whatever? No, no, I assured him. First of all, it's Russian. Secondly, I'm not a spy. For the government. I don't like that you had to specify who you're not a spy for, he said. I'm part of an organization. Well, no, I'm not. It sometimes feels like I'm part of an organization. I'm alone out here, and I've been blackmailed into getting information about what is inside of Over. It has been a search that I feel like I am conducting willingly and have control over sometimes, but any time that I deviate from the path that the person in control of me wants me to be on, there are dire consequences sometimes for things that haven't even happened yet. You may have noticed that sometimes I show up with inexplicable wounds that I don't wish to address. What happens if you deviate from the path exactly? He asked. I could feel the tension building up inside of me, stretching to the point of bursting out. I let out a groaned exclamation. Oh, fuck it. I told him about Wobegon. I told him about the prize, the challenges, and what happened when I attempted to retire from the game. I told him about saving myself from the bear attack. I did not call Wobegon by its name. I did not tell him about using his post at 116E to get inside of Tier 2, though I would be surprised if he hadn't at least considered the possibility. Truthfully, I still had not told him why he ended up in Arizona specifically, just that it had something to do with my personal time travel adventures. He sat there in silence, digesting the information. I unthinkingly checked the time on my phone while he was silent and noticed that I had received an email from none other than Ryan. That would have to wait for a more appropriate time. The silence became uncomfortable. Well, I pleaded, desperate for the situation to resolve itself in one way or another. I can tell two things from that, Mikey. I can tell that you really believe all of that, and I can tell that I went from standing inside of Old Brush Valley to standing in Mesa, Arizona in the blink of an eye. I didn't lose any time. I checked the time less than five minutes before I checked it again in Arizona. There's no way that I was made to be unconscious and transported here. I can't square my experience or your story with what I think reality is. He shrugged his shoulders. I'm rubbing off on you, I said. You're talking like me. With old age comes mental fog, I suppose, he said. 
You're 27, I said, and I'm not old. And here I had resolved myself not to lie to him, and I just told him that 30 isn't old. He stared off into the middle distance instead of continuing with the teasing. We both seemed eager to get back to our normal rapport, with this pesky government technology conspiracy getting in the way. You know I can just give you the codes, he finally said. No, you can't, I said. It's too dangerous. 24, Mike. 24 people in Tier 1 have those codes, he said. They get sent out in an email every week. I know plenty of people who let their buddies in so they can get a peek at what Tier 2 is like. I might be keeping my head down, but that doesn't mean that everybody is. The place isn't locked down as tight as they want you to think it is. But I would still be putting you in danger, I said. Get over yourself, Mikey, he said. You're not being safe. You're taking away my agency under the guise of playing it safe. You just told me that your life is frequently in danger and I have a way to help you, and I'm literally your boyfriend, you self-important doofus, he said. You don't have to do this for- He cut me off, so how the hell did I end up in Arizona last night? There was something that you weren't supposed to see, I said, collecting myself. Things went belly up fast. It was a bad night. Someone sent you far enough away that you couldn't make it back before the problem sorted itself out. Did the problem happen to sort itself out directly in your face? He asked. Yeah. Someone did me a small favor and kept the both of us alive, I said. Buzz. Another email from Ryan. And how often are you kept alive by small favors? He asked. More often than not is my understanding, I replied. And how often am I kept alive by small favors? He asked. I have no way of knowing, I said. He sighed and looked at me. You're a fucking mess, Mike, you know that? Yep, I said confidently. It was one of the only things that I was confident about. So you're what, Edgar, a co-conspirator now? No, Edgar said. I'm your boyfriend, he smiled. Gross, I joked. We're going to become the gross couple that everybody hates to be around because they love each other too much, Edgar said. Over my dead body, I replied. Well, that sounds pretty likely given what you've told me, he responded. They say that the second try is the charm when the first try has been erased through time travel technology and advanced teleportation techniques. What Hunter was worried about was that Edgar would flip on me, and therefore him, and blow his whole scheme, whatever that was. He was probably right that things would not have gone well with the way that things ended. Hunter ended up doing almost exactly what I was planning to do in the end. I think that the beating I received was for his own gratification more than anything else. For consistently putting him in situations where he had to bail both of us out. Wanting to kill Edgar may have been a warning that my sloppiness will no longer be tolerated. Without knowing what he was up to and how I fit into the picture, there wasn't any way for me to figure out what his motives were or how consistently he was holding to them. And now's the time to see what required so many goddamn emails. It had been a while since I had communicated with Ryan. He was only useful to me if I was gathering information for Wobegon in the form of data that I couldn't decipher. It's not like I had any useful technological skills that I could use to get info on Wobegon myself and confer with Ryan as the expert on the subject. I could only work with what I had been explicitly given and I hadn't been given anything like that in quite some time. Saying it out loud just now, I wonder whether or not it's a coincidence that I haven't had access to that kind of information since Ryan and I had used that information to access the boulders. I had begun to wonder whether Wobegon had gone AFK or something. Do young people know what AFK is? I'm not sure that being away from a keyboard is something that anybody ever is anymore. The possibilities as I could see them were these. Whoever is currently running Wobegon is asleep at the wheel. 
they have heightened their surveillance capabilities and were able to get whatever they wanted from me without having to ask me to do things anymore, or I was simply doing whatever they wanted me to do on my own, so there was no need to intervene. I found their silence eerie at first, but I had become so accustomed to doing my own thing that it came naturally to me at this point. The first email from Ryan was titled, Think I can get WBG back in all lowercase. We've come so far from all uppercase. And it read, I've been watching for a while and I think I can get WBG back. I need your help. I know that doesn't sound like a good deal for you, but I'll drop all the bullshit. You'll be free to go if you want to, if I can get control again. R. The second email was titled, At OBV, and it read, Sorry, don't have time for you to respond. Gotta act fast. I'm here. Mean lady at the gate wouldn't even call to let you know that I'm here. Scared me off. I'll be at the diner. Show if you know what's good for you. R. Just what I needed after a difficult night and a tense morning. Ryan proverbially knocking at my door. Good on Charlie scaring him off. We don't really talk outside of work, but she has a good head on her shoulders. That's probably why we don't talk much. We clearly have nothing in common. Ryan being in control was not something that I wanted. I opened the first email expecting to completely dismiss him, but I couldn't get the idea of being free out of my mind. I have revised where I've seen myself ending up so many times since I thought that I was going to become the king of Wobegon that free seemed like the best possible outcome at this point. I know that I keep expounding on it, but it keeps becoming more clear. I knew that Hunter was opposed to this freedom, but maybe if Ryan were in charge of the game again, there wouldn't be anything that Hunter could do about it. My second reaction was that I had just learned a few weeks ago that Ryan was the laughingstock of the time travel murder community. There were people much more professional and clever than he was, and they were outperforming him in Wobegon at every turn. Why should I trust him to be competent when I have it on good authority that he is so incompetent that he lost control of his own game because his infosec wasn't good enough? But it's not like I had the Flinchites begging to work with me, and it's not like I was being well served by the new runner of Wobegon. The new game was the same as the old one with notable twists that I had managed to accrue a large amount of permanent and semi-permanent injuries as a result of being involved. Ryan's Wobegon was much less injurious. Plus, he was harmless without control over the game, so what harm could it do to meet him? I made my way out of the front gate at Over to make my way to the diner. Charlie stopped me before I left. Hey, that guy came back. You know the one? She asked. Yeah, it's fine. I'm taking care of it, I said. You don't have to take care of it, Mike. I'm not afraid of that loser. Whatever he has on you, he can't use against you inside of Over, and I can promise you that. Her tone stayed pleasant, even though the words were severe and menacing. Well, I'm not afraid of that loser either, I said. Plus, it's my business, Charlie. I appreciate you keeping me safe. Bluebird, she said. If you ever need help and don't want anyone to know, come to the gate and call me Bluebird. I'll know what it means, she said. I appreciate that, I said, and left for the diner. Yes, I had the biscuits and gravy again. It had been a gruelingly long couple of days, and I needed all the carbs that I could manage to fit inside of me. I didn't care that it was such a heavy food and there was 6,000 degrees outside in the shade. I just wanted some damn biscuits and gravy. Oh yeah, and Ryan was at the diner, in addition to the biscuits and gravy. I made sure that I initiated the conversation. He was the one that wanted something from me without any leverage, after all. You know, I've been hearing about you and how you fuck this whole thing up, I said. The Flintites sure don't think much of you. He scowled. Well, those assholes think they're smart, but really there's just a lot of them. We could do the same thing if we had half of every hacker on the planet working on it. Which we can, by the way. I just need to get the game back under my control. Well, the rumor is it got spearfished from you, I replied. Click one too many spam emails? I honestly don't know how it happened. I woke up one morning and everything was wiped. 
I didn't have anything anymore. I didn't even know from when in time the attack came. Everything was gone, he said. That does not inspire confidence, I said. Well, the new guy isn't a genius either, he explained. All I need is some info from inside tier two. I'm not even asking to be let inside. If you can get the info for me, I should have all I need to wrestle it back from him, whoever he is. Everything will be in your hands. There won't be any space for me to meddle. I sat and thought for a moment. And you're sure that you can get the game back, I asked. I am working out exactly how I can prevent you from fucking me over if I give you everything that you want, and then you decide that helping me out is no longer worth the effort, I said. That is wise, he replied. And I think I have the way, I said, looking around the diner. If you fail to get me free or attempt in any way to screw me out of this bargain, you are going to die in a gruesome fashion. I have all of the access and the ability in this situation. Do you understand that I am serious about this? Yes, I would do the same, Ryan said. I did not appreciate him comparing himself to me. So what's the mission? I asked. I'll write it all up and send it to you, he said. I know what I need, and I know what's likely inside of Tier 2, but I'm not exactly sure where. I'll put something together so that you'll have some idea of where to look, so you'll know exactly what you're looking at when you find it. It shouldn't be too difficult if you can get in and out of Tier 2, no problem. Well, I can get in and out of Tier 2, no problem, I said. Well, then we have an old-fashioned gentleman's deal, I think, he said, and extended his hand for a handshake. It's a deal, I said, and shook his hand. I don't look forward to working with you, but I look forward to getting free, of having everything that I am owed without the constant threat of losing it. I get the feeling, and thanks for helping me, Mike. I think that we'll both get what we want out of this. And with that, he stood up and left the diner. I sat and finished my biscuits and gravy. There was no downside to accepting the offer, seeing whatever Ryan intended to send me, and deciding then whether or not it was worth it to try and get the job done. Hopefully Hunter wouldn't be able to find me so easily inside of Tier 2 if I were getting in without using Innocent Hunter's badge. Ryan didn't have anything he could do to me if I declined the offer, or took his information and used it without him. For instance, if I went to the Flinchites with it, to see if they could make anything useful out of it in exchange for help from them. It had come up in another conversation that I had had with Ryan in the past, that showing up in person and having to send people out to do things was a big liability, that people in more powerful positions could outright avoid. Flinch didn't go out and do things on his own. Nobody knew where he was, even in time. Showing up at his door to take him out was proving itself to be a Sisyphean task. Not even the Flinchites seemed like they were seriously gearing up to do so. Ryan was weak right now. He was so weak that he was relying on me, of all people, to make him stronger. That is not an enviable position to be in. As far as my plan to keep him honest, I'm sure that you could see the gears turning in my head while I was speaking with him. If I could ensure that Ryan would be sent somewhere if he went back on his promise to me, the middle of the Pacific Ocean for instance, he would have no choice but to cooperate. And I knew exactly where he was at a specific point in time that I could use to make sure that that happened before his plans could even be set in motion. That is the weakness of having to show up in person to get things done. He made himself a target. If you think way back to the episode where Ryan and I had our first heart-to-heart -heart chat, you'll remember that Ryan said that he had an airtight hold on Woebegone because he had installed a dead man switch that would revert things back to a favorable state for him if he didn't stop it from going off. Because of that, I believe it to be possible to schedule a Woebegone event to automatically go off, at least if you have the access that Ryan had at the time. That means that there is a potential that I can set off a dead man switch using the security.exe program. Even if there isn't explicitly a way to schedule an event within the program, I should be able to do it anyway. I think. I sat here trying to work through the contradictions for quite some time. I may have suffered some slight brain damage trying to figure out how to put it together. 
So here's the plan. I get the information from Ryan about what I'm looking for. I figure out where it is and obtain it. I then find a computer with an exposed security.exe program on it and bring a version of myself through time at a point earlier than the me that is doing the mission. Ryan will not know that there are two of me there, so if he does something to the then-present me, the prior me will not be affected because that has not happened to him yet. Therefore, he will be able to use the program to move Ryan before any of this has the chance to happen, drowning Ryan and saving myself and myself. Yes, this all would be easier if I allowed myself to use Edgar as an accomplice, providing that he was willing. But the easiest way to operate a dead man switch is just to say that you have one. Pretending to have a dead man switch is almost equally as effective as actually having one with none of the legwork required. Ryan claims that he had a dead man switch that actually worked, but it is almost more likely that he only said that he did to dissuade me from trying to do anything to stop him. And it's possible that the person that took control over Wobegon saw Ryan's dead man switch as a bluff and was correct, which gave him the confidence to do what it took to get the game away from him. Telling Ryan that I have a dead man's switch, and there will be nothing he can do to stop me in the event that I am dissatisfied with the deal, might be enough to keep him honest. All that is left to do is to wait and see. As of this moment, I have a plethora of opinions on how to proceed, and a vision that is calcifying around one goal, getting out and living my life with what I have been able to cultivate from the game. A world where my loved ones are alive and nothing is actively threatening that. Meaning, there would be one more thing that I would need in order to set things right in my world. This has been Woebegone. Next time, I'll see what I can do with what Ryan sends me. Thanks for playing. So that was the lost episode of Wobegon. I hope you enjoyed it. As you could tell, it was a direct precursor to the episode 31 that actually made it to the feed. And I beg you to remember that not all of that is canon. Moving on to other Patreon goodies, $2 patrons get a Q&A every month. Patrons can ask me questions on the Patreon or the Discord and then I put them together in an audio episode. Here is the Q&A from December where I talk about casting a hypothetical TV show, Just Dance, country music, my favorite scenes, and more. Enjoy. Am I going to say enjoy every time? Hello and welcome to the December Wobegon Q&A. And Happy New Year. I am recording this on the 1st of January. So we will hop right into it and we'll do the Discord first because that's what I've got brought up already. Turducken of Violence asks... Has Mike Walters seen or read Death Note? Because if he has, I just have this feeling he hates Light Yagami and would rattle off reasons why he's a little bitch. But if I'm wrong, feel free to set me right. That's sort of a complicated question because I feel like Light Yagami changes a lot across his, like, scheming. Like, he seems very on the ball at first and then he gets 
too ambitious and then some very silly things end up happening as a result and it is why he ends up spoiler alert he ends up dying one thing that i think that mike would say is that light yagami is too unwilling to hurt himself which is like he has his girlfriend have the shinigami eyes and this proves a giant liability across the show that he isn't willing to do things that will hurt him and that is the opposite of mike and so mike would probably look at that and say oh i could do better in some of these scenarios david alt says david alt continues to appreciate being name checked in q a episodes hello david alt duke asks what is hunter hartley's cup size for bear science so I am purposefully not going to answer this because uh, I've been looking at the fan art that's been coming out recently and I really like all the different body types that the characters have and so I would hate to nail anything down. Uh, so you are free to do your own bear science um, and it is just as legitimate as mine. Melvis Gray Mystery asks, Can't remember outside of Inner Ring and I swear you've said already, but what would the subtitles of each season be? So season one doesn't have a subtitle because it's the first season of the show. But then season two, it didn't have an official subtitle, but it would have the subtitle Old Brush Valley for obvious reasons. And then there's Inner Ring season three, and then season four was called Compound, and then season five is called Together. Time Warp asks, what was Mike's rejected name for the base in episode 50? So that has a chance of appearing in the show, so I don't want to spoil it for you. Pineapple asks, what kind of country music does Cowboy Michael listen to? And does he go around chewing wheat and or toothpicks? So I guess his style would be sort of outlaw country, like Waylon Jennings and Willie Nelson and Chris Christopherson and Johnny Cash, who were in a super group together called The Highwaymen. So The Highwaymen is a good answer. But also maybe something like Sturgill Simpson or Chris Stapleton from like recent stuff. But yeah, sort of like an alternative and as far as chewing on stuff goes, uh, he has that pipe in the episode that he's introduced in, but also, yeah, like wheat or a toothpick or just something like that, it's just some, something sort of folksy. Um, it's good for the aesthetic. Duke asks, which Mike would try the hardest at Just Dance? I think that any given youngest Mike would try the hardest at Just Dance, because anytime they're together, a hierarchy develops wherein the youngest one becomes Mikey, and Mikey always has the most to prove. And so he would want to do the best at Just Dance to prove himself as worthy as these other Mikes who are seconds to years older than him. And the one that would try the least would be the oldest one because he doesn't have anything to prove. And by acting like you have something to prove, you're being sort of uh, insecure and like caring isn't as cool as just being cool. But the real answer is that all of the Mikes would end up trying extremely hard because Mike will do anything to win anything. And that's true with no matter what time iteration we're talking about. All right, and now we are jumping over to the Patreon for the remaining questions. Lilith B. asks, Was Mike actually putting up a podcast in the beginning, and did it have regular listeners? And this is a question that has come up a lot because it presents a huge liability for Mike because any of these people that he's talking about could hear the podcast. And so it does exist. I feel like that's sort of unavoidable. But whatever is happening on his RSS feed is not happening on ours. Like any of the format break episodes where he's not narrating directly into a microphone, that's not what he's seeing. 
but he has to be seeing something because at some point he references an episode number that wouldn't be that episode number if there weren't format break episodes in the feed. So whatever Mike is seeing isn't what we're seeing. And so maybe he's doing like this really lo-fi, like recording directly into the laptop microphone sort of show, and he's not doing anything to promote it. And he's one of those like hundreds of thousands of podcasts that like just toil away in infinite obscurity. And we're hearing something completely different. Lilith B. also asks, will you give the cats a pat on the head for me? And the answer is yes. Um, for those of you that don't know, I have a 16-year-old cat named Sparkplug. She's a tuxedo cat. And then my roommates have three cats, a black cat named Cass, a gray cat named Ollie, and a sort of gray calico-y cat named Lulu. Um, and I will pat all of them on the head. And if you want to hear what they sound like, and you are a $5 patron, you should check out Cat Clips, where it's just recordings of them meowing. I have recorded everyone but Cass so far, so go check that out if you're interested. Alright, and the rest of the questions are from Edgar Mike Drops into Juicy Milk Waters. If there ever was an adaptation of Wobegon, what would it be, slash, which would you do if you were offered the chance? Movie, TV show, book, webcomic, graphic novel, video game, live stage play, musical, etc. I would want a TV show, but I wouldn't want it to be like, the thing to do right now that's really hot is to do six very high-budget episodes. I would rather something that got to explore a lot more and stretch that budget out to like, 18 episodes. Even on the same budget, I think it would be better. I think it would be able to tell more stories and be more interesting. And as far as what service, I'm holding out for Disney Plus because that means that in Kingdom Hearts 7, Mike can get norded. Who would you cast to play Wobegon characters if there was a live action version of it? So Jim Parsons is a name that gets thrown around a lot for Mike. Um, not by me, but by other people, and I don't like the Big Bang Theory, but he seems like a really nice guy. And I guess what we have in common is just like a sort of higher register, quick speaking pattern. So uh, there's that similarity. And it would be against type for him, and that could be fun. Just like some sort of like, wow, Jim Parsons did this very weird thing. Or uh, thinking about him, I ended up thinking about Neil Patrick Harris, because uh, he was Count Olaf. And I think that that energy is sort of similar to how Mike is sometimes. Having Neil Patrick Harris would also open the possibility of having music. As far as Hunter goes, uh, John Goodman is a little bit too old, but is sort of exactly what I'm looking for. Just uh, his body type is perfect for it, and his sort of graveliness and his versatility, like from Roseanne to like more aggressive, darker roles, uh, Cloverfield comes to mind. So that would be a really good choice, I think. Anne, I was thinking maybe someone like MJ Rodriguez. Uh, I loved her in Pose, and she has this sort of take-chargedness to her in that, and I could see that translating very easily. And Edgar would be played by Cole Escola. Uh, a lot of the sort of mannerisms and look in my head of how Edgar looks was based on seeing Cole Escola in Difficult People and Search Party. And so that's a very easy casting choice because it's the one that I immediately made in my head when I created him. As for Chance and Shadow, I've, I've just been doing some Googling and I came up with Colin Hanks and Martin Freeman. And I'm not super familiar with either of them past like seeing them and stuff I was already watching, but they have this sort of je ne sais quoi about them that I feel like maps onto Chance and Shadow pretty easily. So I did some more Googling, and I wasn't really able to find anything super satisfying. Maybe Constance Wu from Marissa, but other than that, not really anything. So if you have ideas, uh, leave them in a comment on the Patreon or in the Discord. Alright, next question. 
Which characters would tell dumb jokes, who would fall for it, and who would call them out on it? I think that there are two types of dumb jokes, and I think that Charlie and Hunter would tell one type, and that Mike would tell the other type. Uh, Mike's being sort of like a mean-spirited, ironic, like, I'm, I know that I'm telling a dumb joke, and then Charlie and Hunter being much more earnest. And I think that Hunter and Edgar and probably Charlie would put up with Mike's nonsense, and I think that everyone would put up with Charlie and Hunter because they are much more affable people generally. Who are the best fighters in bare hand-to-hand combat, weaponed melee combat, and long-distance combat? Well, the answer to all three of them is Marissa, because Marissa is the one that takes combat seriously. And maybe we'll see more of that this season, because they have their own sort of organization forming, and combat preparedness is going to be increasingly important, because there won't be any other organization protecting them. All of them have some experience firing a gun, uh, especially the people that work at Over. Ty and the Boots and anyone from that compound probably have comparable or greater experience with weapons. And I always just assume that Chance and Shadow are always just very quietly proficient at everything that they're doing, so probably them too. Alright, next question. Which was your favorite scene to act? Which were your least favorites? You guys can probably tell that I have a lot of fun doing Michael, and I have been sort of making sure that I don't do his voice too much because I think that most people will think that it is very annoying. But I love all of the format break stuff. Uh, Another one that came to mind was I loved doing that phone call in Donnie's point of view. Uh, That was a lot of fun and allowed me to explore a whole bunch of different things. As far as least favorite scenes, I don't think that there's any one in particular. There are just moments where the script is in front of me and I keep trying to say the words and they aren't enunciated correctly or they don't come out right or I hear something different in my head and I can't find it and I get very frustrated because the show is written and recorded very quickly and so that's a lot of time wasted and so you can probably just find me in some episodes where there's something that doesn't sound like it was enunciated correctly and it was because it was a line that had to go in and I couldn't figure out how to say it and those are my least favorite parts uh often when i go back and re-listen for the director's commentary i'll remember when i had trouble and it won't show up at all in the episode everything sounds fine it was just a difficult recording session which does not mean a bad episode all right next question would you ever make a spin-off slash bonus ep on edgar's year away or Anne's activities in the secret organization she was at Uh, Those are both very fun ideas, and they are both ideas that I have either pictured in my head or out loud pitched in one of these bonus content things. And I would want to do it right, which means that I would want actors for Edgar and Anne, and so that would be a whole other can of worms and a whole bunch of work. And so I would only want to do it if I could have it be what I see in my head when I picture those things, because those have the potential to be very rewarding. Um, and so I don't want them to be just little nothings, if they happen. If you were a guest on another audio drama, which audio drama would you want to be in? Or are there any audio dramas that you think would be interesting for Mike to do a cameo slash collab in? I mean, if I were a guest star, I would want to be in my favorite podcasts, probably. Uh, those being Mabel and Archive 81, out of the things that are still ongoing. But I would also love to guest on any of the Nine to Midnight Cruise podcasts. And I don't think it is giving anything away to say that we are still in contact. As far as audio dramas that I think would be interesting for Mike to do a cameo slash collab in, Ars Paradoxica is a good one, even though it's already finished, because the way that time works is interesting and how they would interact with each other, especially Sally's disposition compared to Mike's. Uh, People have talked about this on the Discord some. 
or Wolf359, because I think that Doug and Mike have a lot in common, and Juno Steel, for that matter, as far as one that's actually still ongoing. I feel like they would have an interesting interaction. Everyone in Nine to Midnight is suddenly a Wobegon character. Who is voicing who, including yourself? Okay, so Harlan is going to be Mike, because Harlan is the most versatile actor out of any of us, I think. Uh, Jeremy and Nathan from the Storage Papers could be Chance and Shadow, because there's two of them. Uh, Jamie from Cellar Letters would be Edgar. We'll have Kevin from Hellgate City Companion be Ryan, because he's got this sort of slyness to him that Ryan has. And then how about Ray from The Night Post for Anne, and Jess from Nowhere on Air as Charlie. I'm going to leave Marissa unfilled because I don't know anyone with that energy. But to continue to fill it out, how about Rat Grimes from Dead Letter Office of Somewhere Ohio for Hunter, and Sean from Wake of Corrosion for Ty Betteridge because Sean is British. And I think that leaves me being Cannonball, which is fine. I think that a full cast version of the show, Cannonball would be a really interesting character to fit into like the whole mix of characters. But those are all of the questions for this month. Uh, thank you for asking them. I'll put up a thread for January here in a couple weeks. And I will see you then. So that was the December Q&A. I hope that you enjoyed it, and I hope that it answered some questions that you might have had. We do those every month. I try to put up the Patreon thread about a week before the episode goes up, and you can always ask questions in the Q&A Discord channel. If you're really looking for a deep dive into what makes Wobegon tick, at the $10 level, I do director's commentaries every week. The commentary for episode 29 just went up on the Patreon, but I wanted to share with you episode 25 because I had a lot of fun recording the commentary for it, and there are some little goodies in there as well. So take a listen and enjoy. Hello and welcome to the director's commentary for episode 25 of Wobegon, Security, parentheses, not responding. We just launched a $10 this is, of course, the first episode of season three, which is like funny because the way that I did the weeks, away. like when I first started doing director's commentary, it must have been right at the end of a season because it's right at the end of a season again. Uh, season four just ended at time of recording. So this is the beginning of the season called Inner Ring, which is the first one that I gave a name. Elizabeth Kirkman. And it's not as big of a sea change as the previous seasons, because I really wanted, I didn't want to like change locations, I wanted to embed inside of Over and get a real feel for what's going on there. Well that certainly was dramatic, wasn't it? I was telling you the story in the past tense, so I clearly knew what happened. So we're picking up exactly where we left off, with Mike having seen the two hunters. And of course, we already knew that there were at least two hunters, just based on how things had to have worked out before, and Marissa figuring out for herself. But there being three is a new revelation for Mike. And having three of him was a decision that I made, because when I was writing out the season, I could see how having three of them with different amounts of knowledge would allow me to do different things with their characters, and people could be doing things in the background that you haven't seen yet, and it made for a larger experience than if there were just two of them. Almost paranormal vibes. I have to respect it. After my reconnaissance mission, I can confirm that there are three hunters, and two of them are already within the walls of Tier 2. The hunter that I know best, 
the one that I'm calling Innocent Hunter, will also be on the other side of the wall soon after he completes his training. I said soon after he completes his training, but having him on the interface of the two tiers has been extremely useful, and that's why he hasn't moved yet. delivered materials from said cabins to other secure locations. And, as I learned last night, the other one of them has an enormous scar across the right side of his face. Wait, uh, no, he was... So present me finds it a little frustrating that Mike goes back and forth as to which side of the face the scar is on. Because as someone that has to write this character, it's very important that I remember which side it's on. It was on the left side of his face. From forehead to cheek, barely missing the eye. It is my opinion currently that these two hunters, who I have nicknamed Mystery Hunter and Punished Hunter, so the name Punished Hunter is a reference to Metal Gear Solid, or a meme of Metal Gear Solid, where there's an image of Solid Snake with a eye patch over his eye, and they call him Punished Snake. So sometimes when I picture Punished Hunter, I picture him with an eye patch, which isn't canon, although I guess it could be canon at some point in the future, but then it would just be the meme, which would make him a real-life meme, like within the real-life universe of the show. Innocent is the one who has yet to do any time travel. Mystery is back on his first trip, and Punished is back on a later trip. I say this because sometime in between those two missions, Hunter must have gotten that scar. I suspect that I've been in contact with Mystery Hunter before. So, Mike's deductions here about Innocent Mystery and Punished Hunter all make sense. Like, they're all deductions that he can make just based on the couple clues that he has. And it's a nice way to set up for the audience, like, these are the expectations that you can have and then I can toy with those expectations as the whole thing progresses and you sort of learn more of like what the actual reality is. I don't know if they would have turned me over to over or killed me or they very well could be allies. I didn't want to risk it. Whatever their motivations, they didn't rat me out to over. No one ever reprimanded me for sneaking over the wall that night. So because there are so many of them, there's almost an infrastructure of Hunter's Jeremiah Hartley that work to ensure that Mike doesn't get caught by Over and prosecuted for treason, for instance, or espionage. And we learned this season that Punished Hunter is behind the scenes, keeping Mike alive even though he hates him. Because for some reason, Mike is very important to the goals of the Hunter's Jeremiah Hartley. is Wobegon. I like how that music just sort of has an ending right there. Sometimes when you're writing soundtrack music, it'll be in the middle of a measure when you need to transition into the intro song, and it can sound a little bit clunky, and you just have to like stop it early or late. Season 2 obviously had a big song at the beginning, which was Old Brush Valley, which is a fan favorite moment of the show. I wish that there was something bigger in this episode it's sort of a a low-key start to something that is pretty intense but as far as musicality goes this season has two musical intermissions it has painted glass and i gave it what it wants so even though it sort of starts out a little low-key it has some of the most musical moments in the whole show i can't tell if my relationship with edgar is flirty or if we're both just gay it was certainly not my intention to lead him on, and he has never explicitly made any moves either. So yeah, now we're getting into Edgar, us that was and it, wasn't a type it of starts out, it's so strange to think of Edgar and Mike as a relationship that started out as a relationship gross. of opportunity for Mike. Time travel murder show. 
not the romantic manipulation show. I would never. It somehow feels like gross if Mike were to be using Edgar in an emotionally manipulative way in order to get information, even though Mike is literally a murderer and we have accepted that as part of the way that he is in a way that we don't have to morally condemn constantly. And I think that that has to do with how murder is perceived differently as a cultural object. And that's how we're able to digest true crime and shows that depict murder in a way that doesn't distress us that much. Though this passcode revelation limited my ability to sneak into Tier 2 whenever I wanted, I was fortunate enough to learn this before I snuck back in. By chance, I was in 116E with Edgar on Monday, after my first trip inside, and instantly recognized that the number that he put in wasn't the number that I had been so adamant... So I was trying to set up a necessity for Mike to need to come back to Edgar, because I did know that I wanted Edgar to be a character, like a, a, char like a main cast character, and so if the code was the same every time, then that would eliminate one way in which that Edgar could be a main cast member. And it makes sense, because it's supposed to be quote high security it could just be someone who belonged but put in an old code out of habit but they should still be held and questioned until that can be confirmed an incorrect code might not have any effect at all this was the place that left locking up to one guy so yeah i was also thinking about like what happens if you put in an incorrect code um because i didn't get to show it like i could have had a time where mike goes and he puts in the code from last week and something happens or doesn't happen, but we need to move forward through this season, so there's not really time for that. It is very novel to go back and listen to this and know the end result where Mike is basically a simp. I'm sure that he's seen that I can see the numbers as he puts in the code. I guess he trusts me. I don't blame him. And that still doesn't make him the most reckless person inside of 116E by a mile. Not to mention that Edgar doesn't know that Mike is even interested in espionage inside of Tier 2. security guy on patrol spots me and I can't prove that I'm even allowed to be there. An easier way to spy would be to compromise someone already working there, and I am working on that, but that's going to take a while. It's funny because he means Hunter, but Hunter ends up not being very useful as a knowing asset to Mike, not in the way that Edgar is. We're heading out to the diner after this. Does he eat things that aren't biscuits and gravy? I've never seen it. Mike does not eat things that aren't biscuits and gravy. I have increasingly relished that biscuits and gravy isn't something that is understood internationally because it creates a discourse every time it gets brought up. But I also tried to keep it sporadic enough that he wouldn't suspect that I was dropping by for a reason. The code had changed. Mike looking down and feverishly checking his calendar to make sure that this was the right day to hang out with Edgar so as not to be conspicuous while Edgar just looks at him. So Mike would have had to go on Amazon.com and purchase like the cheapest possible balaclava in order for that to be a concern. Because if you just go to Amazon.com and type in balaclava and look at your options, most of them you can see how it incorporates a beard because it has like the, the gator that goes down. But uh, I was thinking about masks, I think, when I wrote that. Because face masks are so awful on your beard. Because um, they just smush it in all different directions. I've been inside the building several times at this point, so it felt like I belonged there. 
It felt more like going into the office after everyone had gone home for the day, so sort of strange to see a building like this in this context, but not the scary leap of faith that it once was. That's a relatable feeling, right? Like the sort of liminal space of a place after hours, especially if it's a place where you don't actually work. 8163345. The door unlocked. This was becoming like clockwork. There were no new areas to explore between the hallway and the warehouse. The other doors in the hallway were still locked. Whatever was stored in the warehouse portion was still locked, too. The only difference was that this time, I noticed that there was a normal-sized door on So the yeah, after I recorded episode 24, I was like, are we really going to make it so there's there just like a big warehouse bay door for trucks? And so I decided, oh no, there's a door that makes a lot more sense. And we talk about the size of the warehouse a little bit in season four. It's very big, and so it could be easy to miss something, especially if you're in a hurry because you're scared that at any second you could be caught. I thought it was the only exit. I went through the person door this time. It was much quieter. I turned off the flashlight and peeked around. Mike makes a mental note to get a headlamp at some point. And didn't see anyone. There was more moonlight than the first night, so I'd be able to sneak around without having to turn the flashlight back on. I, at one point, think I tried to keep track of the moon in this show, but if you try to keep track of the moon in this show, you will drive yourself into madness. Especially because how long time has passed is difficult sometimes, especially in this season and the next season. So the moon acts very conveniently as a result. It sort of felt like home. It was a type of place that I knew how to sneak around in already. I mean, ignore what's happened to me every time that I've tried to sneak around in Old Brush Valley. I quickly found a building to hide behind. There were night guards with carts, but they didn't seem insurmountable. I just had to find a building. So security inside of Tier 2 is a little bit better, and it is enforced with time travel. But it's not functionally different than Tier 1, so Mike has all of the expertise that he needs to deftly avoid everyone. Which means that basically anyone from Tier 1, if they were to sneak in, could do a pretty good job of avoiding the people that they needed to avoid. About 10 minutes, much shorter than Marissa's route and they would be able to see me from a distance for a minute or two before that. This should have, have culminated fast. in more so of an altercation at some point, but it doesn't. The way to the other building. I ran up to the doors, put the stick from the air duster can between them at the top, and then... Psst. I was in. What a relief. I am very satisfied by those sound effects that I added, uh, which are literally just me going and then a very simple synth to make a beeping noise, and then that final sound is the sound of a cassette deck turning off. And that's how I made the door unlock sound effects. Back pain and say things like, I'm living the dream when people ask them how things were going. It smelled like disinfectant wipes and coffee and Carol's perfume that she wears too much of because she can't really smell it anymore. Even top secret governmental agencies like this one need people like I feel Carol. like that's another nice evocation of the liminal space of being in an office after work hours, especially in an office where you don't work. There were rows of cubicles with some offices further in the back. The cubicles all had desktop computers at them. Most of them were still on and standby. So the first logical and so this is very convenient for me as a writer to have this place with this technology in it. And so that's how it gets set up as a main mechanic for how Mike will operate inside of season three. It's not like someone's going to break in and then try every computer. And we finally get to do time travel instead of have time travel done to us. Sorry, lazy guy with that thought process. You're right literally almost all of the time, but not tonight.
you need to have a stern conversation. The way that the sloppiness is inside of over feels realistic to me, at least in the broad strokes. It might be just a little too much. Like Mike might get away with a little too much. But I think that like it makes sense that the outside doors can be tricked. Someone hasn't done their due diligence and didn't put a password on their computer because it's so much easier to log in without having to memorize like the one that you use for work. The app didn't work. Okay, open as administrator. There we go. That worked. It was a fairly archaic looking app. And of course, Windows being a janky pile of nonsense a lot of the time, and its interaction with, especially when you're trying to run a proprietary program on it, that all feels true to life. It looked like it wasn't optimized for new hardware. The principal feature of the program was a map spread across four tabs for tiers one, two, and three, as well as an overview tab of the whole facility. You should imagine a sort of Windows 98 style aesthetic, like very blocky with like a lot of gray and like visible pixels. There were fields for time from and time to, as well as for coordinates. And so Mike sees that and is like, well, of course, this can only mean one thing. My eyes lit up at the word time, though. I should have taken pictures of the program so that I could go back home and safely analyze what I had found and come back when I had figured out more things. Did I do that? So the actual reason that Mike can't do that is because we're in a hurry, and we need to establish this. And I could have just had a throwaway line, like, I took the pictures and I went back home, and then the next day I broke in again. But why do that? We're already here. What if something happened and I couldn't get back in? For instance, what if someone figured out that this building had been broken into, and how shoddy the locks are? I was here now. The time to figure this out was now. Curious, I started to fiddle around with the app. I found a spot on the map in Tier 1, near the red flag cabin where the bear attacked me. The map let me zoom in with a great amount of detail, so I was able to see exactly So Mike the bear pretty much immediately figures out what this is for. Locations of buildings, and I mean, what else would it be? Because he's in the time travel security location, and so there's these, these things where it's like, oh, here's the spot that you choose, and here's the two different times that you put in. And so it's easy to put together that what is going on is a security program that allows objects to be moved through time and space. Definitely being attacked. I left the rest of the fields untouched. I was only guessing at what I was doing and what can happen, and I only wanted to change one field at a time. If you change too many variables... And Mike chooses basically the most vivid memory that he has of something that he could change and observe the results of. The blue loading cursor appeared, and the program whited out. The bar at the top of the application now read security parenthesis. I was thinking a lot about Ableton, the program that I use to record these episodes, and how it will crash all of the time. Sometimes it will crash instead of just normally closing. It loves to crash. And so I was thinking about that program when I was writing about this program and how it wouldn't respond. Which is ironically paralleled because the security program is the most important thing inside of Tier 2, and this program that I'm recording in is the most important thing for recording Wobegon. That I will under no circumstances let you so yeah, the bear is back, and I always knew that Mike was going to be the one to save himself from the bear, and I knew that it wouldn't be through Wobegon, that it would be through something else. I just hadn't mapped out what this security program was, or where it would be, or what it would look like when I wrote that episode. I recognized its size. I recognized the way that it held itself. I recognized the bit of my own t-shirt that was in its mouth. Very soft shirt. I hope the bear could appreciate the mouthfeel. There's my favorite sound again. The bear said. What happened next could best be described as utter calamity. 
The bear was confused and angry, but it didn't seem particularly interested in me. I'm glad that this After made it into all, the first episode. It's just a little bit of action and not just intrigue. Like, stuff is happening. I guess the alternative would be for Mike to get caught by a person and end up in a standoff or get taken in or something, and that was something that I wasn't ready to deal with yet in this episode. Or how to not completely wreck the place with their enormous and powerful bodies. The bear proceeded to completely wreck the place with its enormous and powerful body. These cubicles were nothing to it. It tore through the If you've ever seen a wild animal that got stuck inside when it didn't intend to be, you sort of have an idea of how intense their panic can get, and then you just imagine that that's a bear. Um, that would be calamitous. The bear sped from one wall to I wonder if there would be a way to act this out, like in a format break episode, in a way that sounded like an actual bear actually wreaking havoc in this sort of building. When I actually do something like that, I have a more manageable subject matter. My superior human brain, brain knew exactly where the exit was and ran that way. You can say a lot of things about Mike Walters, but he is smarter than a literal animal sometimes. I ran outside and closed the door behind me. The night patrol had just passed through here and was heading away from me. I could see their headlights further down the path. I took this opportunity to run back to 116E and get inside. The door was still propped open for me. I made my way back through the building and out into the tier one side. I took off my ball. So he just took a leaves the bear in there and then goes so back home. And it's like, well, that is now someone else's no problem. I wasn't somewhere that I wasn't supposed to be anymore. And there was a giant gate between the bear and myself. Running would only cause anyone. I mean, it's the problem of someone who is much more equipped to deal with the problem than he is. So maybe it's for the best. Somewhere that it wasn't supposed to be, even if I had the adrenaline at the moment to run a marathon. It was nearly another harrowing experience that could have easily killed me, but I got something out of it this time. The time loop closed itself. I'm the one who disappeared the bear, and I did it on a whim. So Mike is just Mike like, oh yeah, I closed the time loop. As though the time travel technology in the show is as simple as having this time loop. And he's correct that he has done something that affected him in the past in a way that he's already experienced. But to say that there's some sort of like destiny pulling him into that, to close, quote, close the time loop, is uh, just his conjecture. Before my experience, and it doesn't really account for any of the time weirdnesses that we see before or after this moment. was directly related to his promotion. If he hadn't been promoted, I wouldn't have learned about the inside of 116E, and I wouldn't have found a way into Tier 2 by myself. So yeah, thanks, Hunter. I'm sure that your conscience will stay clean after that. It was another definitive refutation of the evidence that I had that winning a game called Wobegon was still on the table for old Mikey boy. If I'm being honest with myself, I think that I've actually been disabused of that notion for a while now, even if I haven't admitted to it. I think that I held on as I think as this I is where we finally move on from Mike thinking of himself as a participant in a game called Wobegon, where the goal is to win, and once he wins, he will have ultimate freedom and power. I think this is the final reckoning wherein he ascribes all of that importance and all of that inevitability. At least when he died the first time in the traffic accident before Wobegon, I wasn't responsible. It was the result of a natural sequence of events. It wasn't an artificial prolonging, facilitated at every turn by people with nefarious intent. Myself so Mike is wrong there. It is not better for Matt to have died of quote-unquote natural causes earlier, just because of the quote-unquote nefarious intent of the people who brought him back. Matt is better off alive, as everyone in the world is.
and that's a very self-centered way for Mike to talk, in a way that sort of just doesn't get acknowledged here. He could have lost everything in a divorce right before I showed up. He could have really come into a lot of money and the trouble associated with... But I do have to reckon here with Matt's state of living as referenced twice by the show at this point. There's a chance that I succeed and I will be able to help him, but I'll be too busy or selfish with other stuff to put the work in. Other stuff like making sure that I'm not getting killed by a bear. And I have to live with that. I like how Matt has come back into focus at the end of season two and the beginning of season three because it sets up Matt to be someone who is available later, as in like at the end of this season and the beginning of the next season. It's impossible to place any blame onto it, and I want it dead all the same. I don't think that it's particularly cruel to feel that way about the bear at this point in my life. Since I've also been the bear, I might be uniquely qualified to pass judgment, but I'm also less concerned than I ever have been with whether or not my thoughts are cruel. I don't have any control here. The people inside of Tuesday So this is, I know that Mike no has been like this before, but he's sort of getting jokerified here Surely I've earned that. in a way that I feel like we see more going into the season and next season, where he becomes less and less concerned with the ethical argument for what he's doing, which I think is a fair way for him to feel, because he can have this ethical argument every time, or he can just realize that he's decided on his ethical arguments for it. Grappling with successfully being murdered by a friend. I agreed to it, according to her, but my lack of memory of this consent made it even harder to process. She had access to a part of my life and even death that I didn't, and I didn't know if I could ever... So yeah, Anne is complicated, friends. especially right I now, and we're still dealing with that even more than we have since this episode, where we are in the show now. Mike, I hope this finds you well. As we talked about when I came out to see you, I am deep into my own investigations at a different facility. So the implication here is that Anne completed the fourth challenge, and then, the same way that Mike got a job at Old Brush Valley, she got a job somewhere else doing whatever she's doing. So this is the email where she reveals that the people who assaulted Mike in his cabin call themselves the Flinchites. They called themselves Flinchites. I mean, they didn't outright say, we are the Flinchites, here is our theme song. It seems like an oversight to not actually have a song that goes, We are the Flinchites, this is our theme song. So, uh, how about this? Corrected that mistake. You're welcome. Ran Wobegon through a guy named Flinch, which can't be a coincidence. Do you think that these guys work for him or have taken his name for some other reason? Either way, something to look into for info and for your own safety. Toodles, Anne. I mean, I don't suppose it has to be. So I actually sort of had the idea in two different stages because I knew at the beginning of this arc with the Flinchites that the three people who attack Mike in the cabin are from some other group that isn't over or Wobegon. 
But I also had this idea that there are these people who are trying to emulate Flinch and find a parallel route to the technology. And it was only when I came to put this season together that I was like, well, I can either envision a whole other organization or I can fold these people who attacked Mike into this Flinchite idea. They want to be Flinch. And I mean, who doesn't? That's the whole reason I'm out here. I want to be Flinch. Maybe I'm a flinch and I did think about maybe just like a, a cultish or a religious adherence to flinch as a group, but the more I thought about it, the less interesting the possibilities of that became. Myself included. I don't know if the people who attacked me worked for over. Given their unique power, I could easily imagine them being able to get inside of Tier 1 without much effort in order to attack me. I should talk to Charlie about that. Or they could be guards. That would have been a good idea to talk to Charlie about that. And I wish that he had, because Charlie is this character that still exists entirely on the periphery and just seems to exude potential for the show, but just hasn't been worked in fully. Not to mention the fan response is very positive to her. Maybe it's putting an end to the bear saga. Maybe it's the arbitrary line of demarcation between seasons of a podcast. But things are beginning to feel possible again. Things got dark after the Flinchites attacked me. Perhaps not as physically violent or gory as other parts of my story, but more emotionally depraved than ever before. I felt completely hopeless, but I stayed on the path that I had been put on all the same. I think it was because I wanted to destroy myself, and the way that I was going seemed like a proven method to do so. That was a well, big jump from, oh, all myself. of this stuff, and maybe I it's because I wanted to destroy myself. I have somewhere to go. It now. makes sense if you're Mike Walters, but it, it felt like it came out of nowhere. We will keep doing so until I find what I'm looking for. Whatever that might be, this has been Wobegon. Thanks for playing. So that was the beginning of Season 3. It was an alright beginning. Uh, maybe a little more inauspicious than the first season beginning or the second season beginning. But it sort of has to be. Like, it's sort of... We're hitting a stride here. This is episode 25. Not everything is brand new, and a lot of the things that are happening or concepts that existed that are being combined and that's important because there's a whole bunch of mysteries that exist at this point in the show and we need to address them before we can move on fully otherwise we're just abandoning plot threads it feels like so next episode is chance and shadow episode 26 and we will talk about that one next friday i will see you then all right bye guys And that was the director's commentary for episode 25 of Wobegon. I hope you had fun listening to it and listening to that theme song for the Flinchites. I had a lot of fun making it. That was just something that I thought of on the spur of the moment while I was doing the commentary. I do those commentaries for $10 patrons every Friday. This coming Friday will be episode 30, Punished. Next up is another perk that is available to all patrons, and that is the Diary of Eliza Schultz podcast. The show is on a break right now, but patrons get access to it weeks before it shows up anywhere else. Here is one of my favorite episodes, episode 7, called Oh God, I Am Larry. The show is sort of an anthology, sort of a narrative, so you shouldn't be too lost listening to a random episode in the middle of the show. It's pretty different from Wobegon, and I have a lot of fun making it, so hopefully you'll have a lot of fun listening to it. Enjoy.
The matted grass path was damp from recent rainfall. It was long and narrow and surrounded by a lake on either side. It had been man-made in order to allow hikers to get to the forest on the opposite side of the lake without walking around the whole lake, which was many miles in diameter. Since there was a lake on either side of me, there was no tree cover to protect me from the sun. It was early morning, but still seasonably warm. At that rate, I expected it to be swelteringly hot by midday. I had begun to tan for my previous journeys, so I was spared from the worst of sunburn and blister. The forest maw was deep green and ominous. The trees grew side by side, competing for resources. Compared to the brightly lit path that led into it, it looked like a completely different universe in there, as if you would be swallowed up the moment that you stepped into it. The closer I got to it, the more it felt like a location, spelled with a capital L. A place where something happens, or lives. Something spiritual, or animal, or human. The mystery arising from the ambiguity of these different categories becoming in tension with one another. The backwards novel that Raphael gave me was clenched awkwardly in my right hand. I say Raphael, but it feels strange to not address him by his full name, Raphael Muslani, the airport novelist. We have met twice now. He let me stay the night in his home. I don't need to call him Raphael Muslani. He doesn't call me Eliza Schultz. There is nobody that would require clarification if I only called him by his first name, Raphael Muslani. Raphael. The binder containing the backwards novel was large and unwieldy, the novel having been printed onto loose A4 pages and then hole-punched and placed inside. It was considerably larger than a normal novel, despite being much shorter in length. The binder could fit ten times as many pages as it currently did, whereas I could walk while reading the Sizemore Reduction, or whatever Raphael decides to call that novel, walking while reading the backwards novel was out of the question. The outside was made of slippery clear plastic, and the whole thing slid in my hands as I tried to read something that required both hands to do, and made page-turning a difficult ordeal. I would have preferred a stapled set of pages, but the novel was too long to have been stapled together by a normal office stapler. I prefer to keep moving while I'm reading, especially if the reading is a light affair. The extra task keeps my mind from wandering too far. Sometimes, if I'm sitting in a chair reading casually, I'll read a whole page and then realize I was thinking about something else entirely the whole time and didn't absorb any of it. A relatable experience, I'm sure. From my place on the path, I could tell that it would be too dark to read the backwards novel inside of the forest. I would have to read it before I went in. I could read the novel after I got out of the forest, but that thought comes with several assumptions. I am assuming that the forest ends, that the forest is something that I can eventually exit, and that nothing will separate me from the novel before I get out of the forest. None of those possibilities seem exceedingly likely, but all of them would result in me not being able to read the novel. So I decided to read the novel before stepping foot into the forest. I made it to the forest maw sooner than I had expected to. From this vantage point, it was all-encompassing. The trees were tall and loomed at the top of my eyeline. It was looming and inescapable. The sight of it almost drew me in, like a smaller fish being lured in and eaten by an anglerfish. I was tempted by the heat to walk into the cool forest and wander down its paths. I remembered that I needed to read the backwards novel. I walked down the bank of the path to the water, where I found a shoreline, surrounded by stones large enough to sit on. I chose one of them to sit on and opened the backwards novel and began reading. It was almost high noon, and the sun was hot on my neck as I looked down upon the novel. I applaud Rafael Muslani for writing a backwards novel and leaving it in that reversed state. It isn't a high-minded, avant-garde approach to writing, it is simply taking one well-tested writing convention and doing the opposite. There is still much to be gained both for the novelist and the reader with these sorts of tests, though. 
I knew from the excerpt that he had shared with me at his house that this was not going to be as easy a read as other Raphael Muslani novels. Perhaps it was for the best that I was sitting down for this one. Maybe my mind wouldn't have time to wander. Sure enough, it was a story about a fish, told in reverse order, that started, or ended, with the fish, Larry the Fish, getting caught by a fisherman. I imagined the novel in full publication titled Larry the Fish, with a comma between Larry and the, with a picture of a fish coming out of the water on the cover, that would sell well in airports. Readers would likely be disgruntled that they didn't get what they paid for. Traveling backwards through time, Larry swam around in his underwater habitat, often finding refuge under an enclave of rocks. He rubbed against the soft sides of the rocks for stimulation. I read once about a woman who made friends with an eel that she saw while scuba diving. She would bring it food and it would, in turn, offer itself to be rubbed like one might rub a dog. Larry the fish had no such avenue for friendship. The underwater world is as competitive and unforgiving as it is in our world. Larry fought for meager pieces of food against larger fish. He was the target of predator fish and escaped one scrape with a piece of his tail missing. The fish on the book cover could have a piece of its tail missing. The first chapter of the book, or the last, is completely without inner monologue from Larry. I've called him Larry so far. Larry does not know that he is Larry in the first chapter of the book. It is a straightforward, though reversed, telling of a typical life of an average fish. Larry is not special anymore. He is simply a fish. If the story were told from beginning to end, one would have sympathy for the man who has just been reduced to this animal state, a tragedy for him to lose his sapience to satisfy an alien's curiosity. At the beginning of the novel, though, it made me a little impatient for explanations. Little by little, Larry's inner monologue starts to come back. At first it's just food, 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 written over and over again. At first without punctuation or spaces, food, 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 which goes on for almost three pages. Then something more structured, food, period, food, period, and so on. Chapter 2 gets gradually more coherent as we see what Larry has forgotten about his essence, culminating in the last two sentences, I am Larry, and then, Oh God, I am Larry. Oh God, I am Larry is what I would title the novel if I weren't trying to get it sold in an airport bookstore. Chapter 3 is where the reader finally gets some insight into what's happening inside of Larry's mind. Larry grieves the harsh reality of his world and his waning memories of a life before it. He regrets ever thinking that the cutthroat world of encyclopedia salesmen was brutal, knowing the fate that he is now doomed to. I hadn't considered that the novel could be a period piece before the line about Larry being an encyclopedia salesman. That line gave me literary whiplash and sent my mind decades backwards in time. Larry struggles to remember the time on the alien spaceship, but feels the memory wriggling out of his grasp, like a fish. Raphael specifically wrote, wriggling away, like a fish. I would cut the comparison to a fish. I was already comparing it to a fish in my mind. Chapter 3 ends with Larry hitting the water for the first time and thinking, Oh God, I am a fish. A parallel to the end of chapter 2. The next chapter begins with Larry being dropped out of the ship from a great height into the water. The novel is reversed sentence by sentence, so he is in fact dropped from the ship, but the reverse action to that would be him being beamed up by the ship, presumably as he was when he first encountered the aliens. On the ship, we get the first line of spoken dialogue. Quub, Larry said, W-H-U-B. This was his last utterance upon fully becoming a fish. The rest of the chapter is a reverse transformation sequence with a crowd of aliens watching the main aliens, as one might do in a surgery theater. Surgery theaters being another thing that used to exist and no longer do, like encyclopedia salesmen. There is no description of the aliens in chapter 4. I imagined my own platonic form of aliens while reading. Smooth, humanoid, silver people with black eyes and minimal features. Chapter 5 begins with human Larry's body being shrunken down to the size of his eventual fish form. 
It is only after this that the reader learns that the aliens are of a similar size in proportion to the fish themselves, propelling themselves on their stomach like snakes do on Earth. They speak in a language that Larry cannot understand and can barely hear, existing in a higher frequency range than he can perceive. Rafael Muslani writes out some of their dialogue, things like, This dialogue goes on for a tedious length. Chapter 6 is comprised entirely of Larry yelling various questions at the uncaring aliens, like, Why are you doing this to me? Which becomes, What are you going to do to me? As we read backwards through time. Chapter 7 describes how Larry was sucked up into the spaceship, which he believed to be much higher in the air than it truly was. As the tractor beam draws him in, his inner monologue remarks that the ship is the size of an American two-bedroom house, and how the opening has just enough space for him to fit through. Larry has just wrecked his car at the beginning of Chapter 8. There is a bright light that is physically pulling him towards it. He is screaming in agony from watching his wife die in front of his eyes. He is watching his wife die in front of his eyes. His car is being pulled off the road by a bright light that is attracting him to it. Chapter 9 shows Larry selling what will be his last encyclopedia. He thinks about quitting his job. It's a hard sell. The man whose door he has knocked on informs him that he has just bought his first ever computer, and now he can look up information on the internet. This again changed my entire conception of when the novel was supposed to be taking place. The novel ends with Larry going fishing with his wife in Chapter 10. I say that it is the end of the novel, but Raphael Muslani indicated to me that he didn't consider it finished. I think it's a nice end to a short story. It connects the beginning and the end of the novel in a way that is thematically appropriate given its structure. It's a rare tightness of form for someone like Muslani. We never learn what the aliens want out of this, but I think that ambiguity is best left as is. Overall, I liked the novel. I thought it very well could be one of Raphael's best novels. Its brevity helped in these matters. There was no time for quirky side characters. It had a gimmick that made it a more challenging read, but that challenge paid off with how it warped your expectations around reverse movement of time. The repetitive parts could be glazed over. I ripped out one of the pages that just said food on both sides, crumpled it up, and pitched it into the lake. I would encourage him to keep Oh God, I Am Larry short, and only bring it to full novel length if he had no other option. It was solidly afternoon at this point. The forest maw was calling out to me, pulling me, much like the fish alien ship had pulled on Larry. I looked out onto the lake. It was blindingly reflective. A fish jumped out of the water. It wasn't missing a piece of its tail. It wasn't thinking, oh god, I am a fish. I chucked the manuscript as far into the lake as I could manage. It fluttered, almost like a butterfly with a bit of wing missing, and landed paper-side down in the water. It floated there, waiting to waterlog as it would soon do. I turned my back to it and headed inside the forest maw. So that was episode 7 of The Diary of Eliza Schultz, Oh God, I Am Larry. The Diary of Eliza Schultz has its own public RSS feed. Just search for The Diary of Eliza Schultz anywhere that you already get your podcasts. The show is on a break right now, but when it comes back, new episodes will be on the Patreon six or more weeks in advance. Finally, I wanted to share with you a song from the upcoming Season 3 soundtrack of Wobegon. You can check out the other soundtrack releases at wobegonpod.bandcamp.com, or as a perk for $5 patrons. These versions of the songs are remixed, remastered, and reimagined to turn soundtrack tunes into standalone songs. 
And, of course, you can listen to the original instrumentals on Patreon at any tier. Check out this song, Hunter the Bear, that I made from the episode 30 soundtrack. The lyrics are related to what was going on in the episode. It's going up on the Patreon the same day as this bonus episode comes out. So without further ado, here is Hunter the Bear.
That was Hunter the Bear off of the upcoming Season 3 soundtrack. I hope you found something that you enjoyed in this Patreon sampler. The show is funded by Patreon, namely, it allows me to not have ads. If you found something that you liked here, there is so much more at the Patreon, and new additions every single week. Special thanks to all of my patrons who have helped make the show what it is so far. And again, if you would like to support the show, go to patreon.com slash woe underscore begone. Episode 53 of the show comes out on Wednesday, January 12th. This has been Woebegone. Thanks for playing. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.